0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, as we bring our time to a conclusion, let's think of where we began with the kingdoms of our culture. These two views of reality... Two ways of thinking about history, two ways of thinking about humanity, and we sought to understand the fight for the Christian faith. And then we talked about the way in which some of the messages of that kingdom are brought to us. And we considered the priority uh, of the word over the uh, image in the way that God has chosen to reveal himself. The primary tool of the kingdoms of the world in our own time has been this fast-paced, changing um, image, um, but God still primarily speaks to us through His Word. Then we considered the sexuality of the kingdoms, perhaps the dominant cultural issue uh, of our time, where there are these, again, these two views that ultimately have a religious root. Uh, grounded in two different visions of reality, of what the divine is, of what human beings are. And so finally now we're considering the espionage of the kingdoms identifying false gospels masquerading as the truth. That is, what are the ways in which this other kingdom perspective seeks to infiltrate the church? Now obviously our, our infiltration of the culture is through faithful preaching, teaching, evangelism, um, uh, witness in word and deed in every aspect of our lives to the truth of the gospel. But there is obviously uh, always the effort, and it, uh, it, it happens because it's a spiritual matter, it's a spiritual conflict, that the influence of the other kingdom seeks to make its way into the church. I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 23. Jeremiah 3, verses 1 through 23. And this is a text that uh, was before the Babylonian exile, before the Israelites were carried off into Babylon. Its background is the long uh, struggle between, in, in Judah between idolatry and the true worship of the Lord. And the Hebrew uh, word actually for pagan deities, which comes up in the passage, is actually translated in three ways in Scripture, demons, idols, and vanities. So let's hear what Jeremiah says. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him to marry another man, sorry, to marry another, can he ever return to her? Wouldn't such a land become totally defiled? But you, you have played the prostitute with many partners. Can you return to me? This is the Lord's declaration. Look to the barren heights and see, where have you not been immoral? You sat waiting for them beside the highways. Like a nomad in the desert, you have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. This is why the showers haven't come, why there has been no spring rain. You have the brazen look of a prostitute and refuse to be ashamed. Have you not lately called to me, my father? You were my friend in my youth. Will he bear a grudge forever? Will he be endlessly infuriated? This is what you have said, but you have done the evil things you are capable of. In the days of King Josiah, the Lord asked me, have you seen what unfaithful Israel has done? She has ascended every high hill and gone under every green tree to prostitute herself there. I thought after she has done all these things, she will return to me, but she didn't return and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. I observed that it was because unfaithful Israel had committed adultery that I had sent her away and had never given her a certificate of divorce. Uh, sorry, and had given her a certificate of divorce. Nevertheless, her treacherous sister Judah was not afraid, but also went and prostituted herself. Indifferent to her prostitution, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah didn't return to me with all her heart, only in pretense. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord announced to me, unfaithful Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go proclaim these words to the north and say, return, unfaithful Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not look on you with anger, for I am unfailing in my love. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice. This is the Lord's declaration. Return, you faithless children. This is the Lord's declaration, for I am your master, and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I will give you shepherds who are loyal to me, and they will shepherd you with knowledge and skill. When you multiply and increase in the land in those days, the Lord's Lord's declaration, no one will say any longer the ark of the Lord's covenant. It will never come to mind, and no one will remember or miss it. It will never be made again. At that time, Jerusalem will be called Yahweh's throne, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to the name of Yahweh in Jerusalem. They will cease to follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north and to the land I have given your ancestors to inherit. I thought, how long, how I long to make you my sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of all the nations. I thought, you will call me my father and never turn away from me. However, as a woman may betray her lover, you so you have betrayed me, house of Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. A sound is heard on the barren heights, the children of Israel weeping and begging for mercy, for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you faithless children, and I will heal your unfaithfulness. Here we are coming to you. You are the Lord our God. Surely falsehood comes from the hills, commotion from the mountains, but the salvation of Israel is only in the Lord our God. Now, I read that lengthy passage uh, because it speaks so critically of God's experience with the covenant people of the Old Testament, of how His relationship with Israel and Judah played out, and how he called Israel, he called Judah, he called God's people, he called his people back to himself as a father and as a husband. Now, in the early centuries of the church, it's interesting that one of the key functions of the Christian apologist was not only to defend the faith from hostile attacks from without, as uh, we usually think about apologetics, but to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's Jude verse 3. So that the task of apologetics isn't simply something that we're doing with the skeptic, with with the person who's skeptical about the faith and wants to ask us questions. The work of the defense of the faith must go on continuously amongst the people of God. Contend earnestly for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Some of the greatest works, actually, of apologetics have been directed not against skepticism, but against heresy and idolatry in the professing church. We see that in the work of Justin, of Irenaeus, of Tertullian, of Augustine. It's interesting that when the Christian gospel really overcame paganism in the ancient world, Humanism and paganism reemerged in the period that we call today the Renaissance. And with it reemerged all the uh, crimes of the Greco Roman world the tyranny, the violence, the slavery, and so forth, the occultism. But where did that paganism reemerge? It emerged in an ostensibly Christian country, Italy, amongst Christian scholars. 20th century liberalism, late 19th century and early 20th century liberalism in the church that hollowed out the Christian church in North America and in Europe. When you go to Toronto and you see all these empty churches everywhere, the city of churches, Toronto the good, these were essentially the mainline Protestant churches. They were hollowed out by liberalism, by false doctrine. And those liberals who did that weren't the humanists outside the church. It wasn't the skeptics outside the church that did that. It was idolatry in the church. It was humanism in the church. When we ask, what are the false gospels masquerading as the truth today? Where is the espionage? Where are the spies in the camp, if you will? It's easy for us, when we think of idolatry, to, see, to, to to turn our minds, as we have to a large degree, during this couple of days, to these two kingdoms and to point to the overt paganism that we see around us, the overt humanism we see around us, the, uh, the occultism, the materialism. They're easy to spot, but the biblical condemnation of idolatry in the prophets is focused upon those who claim to be the covenant people. Jeremiah is not talking about the pagan nations in this passage. He's talking about people who claim to be God's people, God's church. Idolatry is expected from pagans. (laughs) It's expected from the humanist. In fact, it's a form in the Bible of judicial blindness that... Pagans will hear but not see, But hear but not understand. They will see, but they won't comprehend what's going on. That is that when, uh, as Paul makes clear in Romans 1, there comes a point when God hands people over to a depraved mind. That's not actually where humanism and idolatry is most dangerous out there, because there... It's easy to spot where it's most insidious, where it's most dangerous, where we are most at risk always is when humanism, paganism, where this Nimrod's kingdom finds its way into the church. If the church is found in idolatry, what hope is there for everybody else? If the church loses the truth, if God's people surrender the truth what hope is there for our society? And since we're called to be salt and light to the nations, God's Word actually focuses on His exacting jealousy for His bride. This is what you're reading about in Jeremiah 3. It's graphic, isn't it? Shocking. Imagery. It's about God's exacting jealousy because the bride, according to St. Paul, is pillar and support of the truth. The manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the world through the church, according to Paul in Ephesians. So we can be tempted to blame the humanists and the pagans for the state of our culture and the mess and the idolatry, but actually the Bible encourages us, first and foremost, take a long, hard look at ourselves. In this very remarkable passage, Jeremiah points to the faithlessness through idolatry of Israel and Judah, and he likens the idolatry of his people to an adulterous wife who 's playing the prostitute that 's why it 's a, it's a, it's a shocking image the bible doesn 't sugarcoat anything. The image that God chooses is a marriage where one of the one of the uh, partners in the marriage, is behaving as a prostitute. That's how God feels in his experience with Israel and Judah. We learn that God's people took these adulteries, that is their idolatry, lightly and polluted the land. They believed this lie. What was the lie they believed? They actually believed that God is not jealous. That he's not a consuming fire. They thought they could domesticate God. That God would be amenable to syncretism. That he would be amenable to their faithlessness. And that he would not do anything about it. The effect of idolatry amongst God's people was therefore the decay of their faith, their social order, and eventually their captivity. And actually that reality is unchanged. It's amazing, actually, to look at some of the great discussions uh, in our parliaments from history, and I'm not going to delay you with them because I want to I move forward, but when you look at the Puritans, when you look at Oliver Cromwell in England, who broke the power of, parliamentary, of, um, of, uh, uh, of t- totalitarian power with the monarchy, of the absolute divine right of kings, he would go into the house and preach sermons from Scripture. He would call the nation to repentance. In fact, we even signed, we even had something in the Puritan age called the Solemn League and Covenant, where which actually Charles II also signed even after the um, uh, the death of Cromwell, which was a promise to essentially serve Christ as king. Our Queen made the same coronation oath to be submitted to the Gospel and the law of God. The President of the United States t- takes his oath of office on the Bible. He used to take it on an open Bible, a Bible open to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, which invoked the blessings and cursings of God upon the nation. In our, if you look at the uh, uh, Sunday uh, Sabbath uh, laws here in Canada, and you look at the debates in our house, people were appealing to the Bible, to the Ten Commandments, to God's covenant, to God's faithfulness. And there were warnings by senators, liberal senators, that we would go down as a nation if we failed to uphold God's law. This was believed. This reality then of God's covenantal dealings with people is unchanged. In the midst of this faithlessness, now, amongst the Israelites, there is hope. What does God say to them? He calls them to repent, to turn back to Him, to recognize their idolatry so that they can find mercy and grace and restoration. The faithful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then we're told He will give that people faithful shepherds, in other words, faithful leaders, faithful teachers, faithful pastors, it will not lead them into idolatry and blasphemy, but knowledge and understanding. And the Lord's presence will manifest itself as the word goes out to the nations. You see that picture at the end there of all the nations being gathered around the worship of the living God. And so God calls out to a faithless people who've perverted their way, return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. Now what this focuses on, then, is not the world out there, but the church, but God's people. And what we learn is this incredible characteristic about God, this this remarkable fact about God, that one of God's names, one of God's names in the Bible, is the God whose name is Jealous. Isn't that a remarkable fact? How often have you thought about, meditated on, heard sermons on the jealousy of God? In Exodus 20, verse five, we read in the prohibition against idolatry that one of God's names is this: "For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." We see it again in Exodus 34:14, "You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God." This is restated in Deuteronomy 4:24, "For the Lord, your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God." And that's quoted by the writer of the Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 29. This is not one of the names we often focus on, but the word jealous is related to zealous, and it's concerned with, it denotes exclusivity. Exclusivity, which is another word our age abhors, isn't it? We cannot domesticate this name of God. We cannot think, oh, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that. It seems a bit, oh, it's not really worthy of God, is it? Really? We can't turn it into an abstraction and depersonalize it and try to describe it away, uh, explain it away. We can't write it off as an aspect of progressive revelation where these sort of poor, struggling Jewish nomads wrestling with Jehovah worship... Uh, thought of God as jealous, but now we enlightened believers, we have this now superseding principle, this elastic, contentless principle of love, that means that's all gone and done away with. Love and jealousy are actually inseparably related. God's Word tells us, I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3.6. God is a jealous God then. It's one of his names. He's still a jealous God now. It's still one of his names. The writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Hebrews 13, verse 8. So jealousy, like God, is personal. Love is personal. Jealousy is personal. Electricity is not personal. If you're a, a saint or a sinner and you touch an electric fence, you're going to get an electric shock. It doesn't discriminate. Oh, that's a moral person. Won't, won't shock them. It's impersonal. Jealousy is personal. Love is personal. It's actually an aspect of real love. Let me illustrate this way. If I came home from a night on the town next weekend, 7 a.m. in the morning, sat down for breakfast at the table with my wife of now 18 years to share with her about all my adulteries and fornication the previous night. And she said, oh, well, never mind, eat your breakfast before it gets cold. The only thing cold in that room is the marriage. Anybody would say there is a serious problem with that marriage if that was the reaction Because the exclusivity of marriage, marital love, is jealous. It has to be by its very nature. So I am jealous for my wife's affection, for my children and their good, for their well-being. I'm jealous, I hope, for God's church and for His glory. That's where jealousy is a virtue. Jealousy can be a virtue because it's intolerant of unfaithfulness, we can all understand the concept of jealousy its opposite is a complacent careless indifference do you want an indifferent god who doesn't care god's love is a gift love it's a, it's a love that's for our good and for our blessing it's not a need love god's jealousy is not oh i'm so needy i desperately need everybody's love and affection because i'm insecure No, the Bible says God is love. God in the eternal community of the Trinity was in a loving relationship from all eternity. That's where the very concept of love comes from. That's why the Bible doesn't say God is loving. It says God is love because His love is not actualized by His relationship to creation as though He had nothing to love before He created us. He is love in his own being. In short, water cannot get wet. God is love. He's not in need of our love and affection to make up some deficiency in his own being. He is what he is, and he is eternally that. His love is a gift love in which he shares himself with us, invites us into the loving community of the triune fellowship. But a God of accommodation to idolatry is not, not the God whose name is jealous. His love is like that of a husband for his bride it's a longing for our good, beauty, character, our blessing, a passion for our exclusive allegiance and faithfulness. The New Testament, in case you think, well, maybe this is just Old Testament as though that made it somehow lesser, which is a Marcionite heresy in the church. This is all God's Word, not just a few red letters. It's all the Word of God. St. James tells us, he says, you adulterous people. This is James, the Lord's brother. Do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's the two kingdoms we've talked about. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? James 4, 4 through 5. Now, when he talks about the world there, he doesn't mean... uh, To have friends who aren't Christians is enmity with God. He means the thinking, the way of that kingdom that we've talked about, you cannot be a friend of that and in a marital relationship with Christ. James is concerned with the world's way of thinking infiltrating the church. That's his concern. And so jealousy here is a good thing. St. Paul has the same jealousy for the church in 2 Corinthians 11. Just turn there if you have a Bible or if you must, flick there with your phone. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. You digital people. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. This is what Paul says. He says, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. yes. Do put up with me for, verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 11, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve, there's Genesis again, sorry people, there it is, by his cunning... Your minds may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Paul's jealousy is described as a divine jealousy. I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. Godly jealousy. Why? For the marriage of Christ to his people. That it be totally exclusive. That it be totally faithful. And that we not be deceived. And in hearing a distorted Jesus... The lost message of Jesus, everything must change, change. love wins, blah, 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 blah. Another spirit, another gospel. He says, what do you do as a church? You put up with it splendidly. What threatens the church then, what he's jealous about is the exclusivity of this marriage lest they be led astray by false gods, by another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. This is the cause of the decline of the church in our age. We put up with it. We see then this clear link in the Old and the New Testaments between jealousy and idolatry or unfaithfulness, and the illustration of marriage is the clearest example of its nature as one of God's names. So marriage is the, is the illustration God repeatedly chooses for his relationship with us and the jealousy that unfaithfulness invokes, which is exactly what Jeremiah is arguing in Jeremiah chapter 3. And the prophets and the apostles make clear that idolatry in the church leads to jealous wrath with significant consequences. This is an unshakable aspect of genuine love. We cannot liberalize and civilize the God of Scripture to domesticate Him to an egalitarian culture where He's going to accept unfaithfulness and idolatry and false gospels. C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century British apologist, he put the implications well in his letters to Malcolm chiefly on prayer. He said this, All the liberalizing and civilizing analogies only lead us astray. Turn God's wrath into mere enlightened disapproval, and you also turn his love into mere humanitarianism. The consuming fire and the perfect beauty both vanish. Can you imagine responding to flagrant adultery with enlightened disapproval? That's what Lewis is saying. And some sort of magnanimous humanitarian perspective. Ah, well, you know, boys will be boys and things. Whatever that is, it's not love. God's love is exclusive, and his love for his covenant people demands that we eschew all idolatry. So what's the nature of that idolatry? Well, the essence of original sin is idolatry. We've dealt with this. The plan of the tempter was that every person would be their own God, determining what constitutes good and evil for themselves. And since all knowledge is ethical, that whole idea of good and evil, this includes the idea of the autonomous definition of truth. All truth is ethical because what we believe is governed by our posture towards God. And this is, of course, the character of our age, this autonomous definition of truth, as we've heard throughout this weekend. Idolatry has many facets, but its most central is the worship of self. Man's favorite idol is himself and his own will. The moral fruit of idolatry is sin... Because its root is sinful. So in idolatry, God is made, is remade in man's sinful image. So feminism, God becomes the mother. In queer theory, uh, he's androgynous and inclusive, and Jesus is a homosexual. In liberalism, God is a pluralist, and on and on. In other words, the gospel, the Christian message is remade in terms of man's idea about himself. All pagan Idolatry really involves a kind of bribery because they posit a chaotic world that is a constant threat to man, and so forces and spirits and the uh, the principles, if you will, of um, uh, Esoteric principles of reason and so forth, that somehow we can placate or bribe or conform the universe to our will, that somehow we can create that virtual reality. In all idolatry, man views the world not as it is, not as God has made it, but as he would like it to be, as he wants it to be. But in biblical faith, we see that God is the absolute Lord and sovereign over all things. He governs all things by His grace, His goodness, and law. And that is our peace. That is our rest. You know, that is why we can have Sabbath rest. That's why tomorrow, the Lord's Day, we can rest in the Lord and take hands off our lives because God governs all things. There's an amazing amount of a sort of holy waste of time in the Bible, isn't there? All these periods of rest, sabbatical Sabbath years and Sabbath rests, where we get to say, I don't need to work and plan and strive and fret and be anxious today. I can rest in the Lord. That's what the gospel is about, entering His Sabbath rest through His perfect work so that we work in His rest. This is the marvel of the gospel. We're not confronted with a chaotic universe that we can't control, constantly threatening us. We live in God's world where He gives us His rest, and He has... Revealed himself in Christ and through his infallible word. And outside of this, our faith, man's faith, can only be a futile illusion of control. He thinks he has by his politics or his incantations or his words, his ideas, his manipulations, his offerings and everything else. Our culture today has turned back to all these things and finds no true rest. But when the covenant people begin to take on the idolatrous ideas of the world, and they start to pattern themselves with respect to faithlessness, the church is steadily destroyed and society goes with it. This is why God declares, You shall have no other gods before me. And you should not make for yourself an idol. Neither are we at liberty to make covenants with false religions, to syncretize with false religion. There is no common word. There is no common brotherhood as such. There is the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's the two kingdoms. There's the two ways. There's covenant faith and there's idolatry. There isn't a middle way, and we're promised actually in Scripture, God declares that in the age of His church, the Messiah... In Zechariah 13:2, he will cut off the names of the idols out of the land. So the two key forms of idolatry among God's people were in Jeremiah 3 there and are syncretism and false worship or false prophecy, and they usually come together. Quickly, what's syncretism? Well, we've looked at it. Jeremiah highlights it in our passage in Jeremiah 3. The spiritual orgies on the mountains he talks about there in verse 23, the idea there is that Israel has made agreements, has come to sort of um, placate and settle in with false religion. It said, well, we can have Jehovah and other gods. We can blend, we can mix and match, whatever works. The idea is that God is not exclusive, but He's inclusive, that He's pluralistic. And this is a form in the Bible of tempting God, of provoking Him to wrath. God declares through Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. So the covenant people were forbidden from syncretistic worship, covenants, and marriages with non-believers. And actually, the requirement of uh, not entering into such covenants is repeated by the Apostle Paul. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, where he says, do not be mismatched, my translation says, with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God. It's not just Jeremiah. It's the Apostle Paul. That was the danger always of syncretism. So if you're contemplating entering a marriage with a non-believer, can I tell you, say to you, don't do it. The future is misery, and it inevitably, invariably, there are a few uh, occasions where God intervenes by grace and does a, makes a trans, and does a transformation, but invariably in those situations, the believer is slowly dragged down. The covenant people were forbid, forbidden this. We cannot serve two masters. Who is not for me, Jesus said, is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. What fellowship does darkness have with light? Christ declared himself to be the only way to the Father, and so true love is predicated in Scripture on obedience. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so in the modern church, we have people, we have movements, who claim to want a God of love. And they say that that will make us pluralistic and inclusive. And that it will make us not draw lines, and be accepting of various sexualities and so on and so forth. It has ever been the cry of those liberalizing, sanitizing, and civilizing and domesticating the divine that love wins. But that love is an abstraction. Their God is an idol, an idea, an imaginary being, a universalistic, inclusivist, pluralist God, an antinomian God. That is an anti-law God without grace and law, without justice, and if without justice, without mercy. Grace and mercy are predicated on the idea that God is righteous and just. This God is evolving and changing as the spirit of the age appoints the creed of the time. He goes along with culture, a God whose being and ways conform to the culture. This God doesn't speak an infallible word. He speaks only a word for the moment. Man speaks the word for the moment. This is not a God. This is a useless idol. The true God in that situation is man. Might be cloaked in theological verbiage, might be cloaked in the language of mission and missiology in the kingdom of God, but it's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans thirteen ten, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's not a contentless abstraction. The great idol of, our covenant, of the covenant people in our day through the denial of the second commandment is this rejection of the God whose name is jealous and this creation of a God of our imagination who fits nicely with modern Canadian society, who won't rock the boat, who won't offend, who won't exercise church discipline. The Western church has hitched up its skirt to use the image of Jeremiah to play the prostitute against God, and our decline is a testament to our adultery. Many have, as St. Paul warned, declared, Another Jesus, another Spirit, a different gospel. And that God is usually there to service us. Have you noticed? A God who conforms to our lawless desires. He'll improve my self esteem, He'll give me what I want a God who can be bribed by various techniques. He's not exacting. He doesn't give a law. He speaks no unchanging word. He's inclusive of idolatry and sin. He's the inclusivist pagan hippie Jesus. He's the eco-warrior Jesus. He's the pacifist or culturally Marxist Jesus, identifying with the oppressed masses. But he's not the sinless lamb of God, bearing the sin and guilt of the world and taking God's wrath on himself, which is the Jesus that Scripture proclaims. This is the spirit of the age, not the Holy Spirit who takes what is Christ's and makes it known to us, who leads us into all truth. A gospel that is no gospel, a God that is not jealous for my loyalty or my faithfulness. Syncretism. The last issue is false prophecy. Do you know that, um, or false preaching or false teaching? Today, 71% of people cohabit before they marry. And our culture marriage has been redefined genders have been redefined roles have been redefined education has been redefined Law has been redefined justice is redefined and throughout this theological social sexual revolution much of the church has been cohabiting in an open relationship with the world cohabiting with idolatry syncretistic to the core often a preacher of idolatry But we shall discover, and we are discovering, as a church in the West, God does not cohabit. He's not in an open relationship. His covenant is binding. Listen to what St. Paul says in Romans 11 when he discusses the national judgment of God on Israel for idolatry and his grafting in of the Gentiles. Brokes, breaks off national Israel, grafts in the Gentiles. And he says this: then you will say, he's putting words into the mouths of the Gentiles, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is into the covenant, into the vine. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward them who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. This is what he says to the Gentile church. Didn't Jesus say that to the churches in the book of Revelation? I'll take away your lampstand. You go and try and find those churches today in Sardis and Laodicea and so forth. They're gone. God continues His work of kindness and severity in His church throughout the ages, and His covenant word binds us and calls us to be a faithful bride to true, with true and pure devotion. What is it that leads people into idolatry then? Well, it's false teaching and preaching. This is evident in 2 Corinthians 11:4, as well as our passage in Jeremiah 3. But God promises that, that, that if we will return to Him, He will give us shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and with understanding. So how does this work, though? Because idolatry can and does use the name of the Lord. This is why it's seductive. This is why it's espionage. This is why it, it's so dangerous. Jeroboam, in the Old Testament, King Jeroboam, he took and made two bull calves of gold. And he established a new sanctuary. And he said to Israel, this is what he said, "'Behold your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt.'" What a fearful thing to invoke the name of God and of Christ in idolatrous preaching and worship. You see you see what Jeroboam did? He fashioned an idol. He says, this is your God. This is the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. He took the existing religion and he made a new one out of it. He took the terms. He took the language. He even took Scripture and he made a new faith out of it. Usually in Scripture, the false prophet is not this open idolater or pagan, but a prophet who arises from amongst the covenant people. And this has always been the case with the church. It's not usually the brazen spokesman for Baal, that is for sexual license and homosexual marriage and the abolition of the family, who's the great danger to the church. But it's the ostensible churchman who masks his idolatry, as faithfulness. He may be gifted, eloquent, full of good ideas, plausible argument, popular appeal, a TV show, lots of books. They may speak of the mission and the kingdom of God and the real Jesus and so on, but beware because the mark of idolatrous leaders biblically is that they will introduce innovation into the covenant to create a new religion out of the existing one. The true impact of such a ministry is to say to God's people, let's go after other gods. It is Existential, pagan, it's delusional, it doesn't bring rest, it brings only judgment. The jealousy of God shall burn for his people, and he will pull down the idols of our age and call his faithful people to himself. And Paul says the rest will be cut off. He will not share his glory with another. It's so often the case that the more innovation, the more striving there is in the church. So we say, Well, you know, how do we reach the culture? Oh, well, we we don't have enough innovation. We need to have a trampoline act. We need more visuals. We need this, that, and the other to somehow attract people into the church because the gospel and the Bible can't do it. But we haven't actually tried preaching the Bible. Idolatry takes the church into a restless world of unbelief. And a church in unbelief is like the idol she has made, useless and powerless, her bell towers fall, her sanctuaries lie in ruin, her false ministers will fade away. What is the essence of what I'm saying? It's this, to turn God's jealousy into myth and illusion or to equate it with a bygone era of cultural perception from which we have evolved, from which we've progressed, or to restrict it to a bygone era, Error and dispensation is not only to create a false god by falsifying Scripture, it's to destroy the very attribute that those who would domesticate God wish to cling to, love. The love of God. If we turn God's jealousy into a myth and His wrath and His covenant justice into a myth, we destroy the very God we say we want. A God of love. Turns out that that concept of love is not the love of God. It's the projection of fallen human sin onto the being of God. This denuded, permissive, disinterested God is powerless. He's he's ineffective. And what a man worships, that he becomes. But the God of Scripture, he's passionate. He's exclusive. He's jealous. He's a jealous husband. And it's these qualities that make him a God of real love. I can't think of any better way of summarizing this message than by citing what I think is one of the most profound passages in all the writing of C.S. Lewis. And I'm closing with this. This is what he says. The analogy between God's love for a man and a man's love for a woman is freely used in Scripture. Israel is a false wife, but her heavenly husband cannot forget the happier days. I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thy espousals when thou wentest after me in the wilderness. Israel is the pauper bride, the waif whom her lover found abandoned by the wayside and clothed and adorned and made lovely, and yet she betrayed him. Adulteresses, says St. James, because we turn aside to the friendship of the world while God jealously longs for the spirit he has implanted in us. The church is the Lord's bride whom he so loves that in her no spot or wrinkle is endurable. For the truth which this analogy serves to emphasize is that love by its own nature demands the perfecting of the beloved. That the mere kindness which tolerates anything except suffering in its object is in that respect at the opposite pole from love. When we fall in love with a woman, we do not cease to care whether she is clean or dirty, fair or foul. Do we not rather than first begin to care Does any woman regard it as a sign of love in a man that he neither knows nor cares how she is looking? Love may indeed love the beloved when her beauty is lost, but not because it is lost. Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will their removal. When Christianity says that God loves man, it it means God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested because really indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the lord of terrible aspect, is present, not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the world's Persistent as the artist's love for his work. Despotic as a man's love for a dog. Provident and venerable as a father's love for a child. Jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. It is certainly a burden of glory not only beyond our deserts, but also, except in rare moments of grace, beyond our desiring. The impassible speaks as if it suffered passion and that which contains in itself the cause of its own and all other bliss talks as though it could be in want and yearning. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I abandon thee, Israel? My heart is turned within me. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.